grab a seat. It is wonderful to be with you today. My name is Mike. One of the pastors on the team, and uh, you might want to grab your notes out of your handout. We're launching into a new series. Very, very excited about this series. And I want to tell you, Overlake, one of the reasons why I'm really excited about it is because the things that we're going to be jumping into, kind of wrestling through, are things that so many of us, that, that our church family really, we already are, are trying to embrace this challenge from the Lord. We're, we're already trying to put this into practice. So for, for many of us and, and, and for you know, much of what we think about our church family, this is going to be an affirmation. But even as I'm prepping and, and kind of looking at where we are, we're also going to receive it a bit as a challenge. So it's, it's going to be an affirmation. Yeah, we're doing a lot of this stuff already. We're already pushing hard on this. But it'll be a little challenge too. Like, okay, well, where can we embrace this just a little bit more? And, and it all has to do, if you see the, the, the message series title, it all has to do with these two words, us and them. You see, in so much of the political discourse today and so much of the conversation around our culture, there's two groups divided into us and them. And, and unfortunately, when you do that, us and them, what, what inevitably ends up happening is us gets prioritized above them. And then it's not too far of, of a journey to get to the place where it's us versus them. And there's this antagonism and there's this, this warring that happens between us and them. And, <clears throat> and I, excuse me, I, I get so emotional. No, I don't. Um, <clears throat> just a little bubble. I, I just want you to understand that when you see through the lens of Jesus, that this is kind of where we go. When we want to be Jesus followers, we want to see, what we see what, what, what's revealed in the scriptures about Jesus, you realize that from Jesus' perspective... It was, it was him and then them. We were the them. Everybody else was them. But he was, he was not content to live in that kind of a scenario, to have that be the final story. So, so he came and he joined us, right? And he lived this life that was beautiful. It was a with us life. And then he died on the cross that he provided forgiveness and grace, love unending for us. And he was so good at what he did that now there is no them in Jesus' mind. There's only us, all of us. And it just changes our whole perspective. And so what we're going to get into in, in this series if, is this, that if it's helpful at all to talk about us and them, you need to see the model that Jesus sets is, is for us to understand that it's not us versus them. And it's not even us or them, as if it's a binary, zero-sum kind of a game. No, it's us for them. It's, it's, it's us and them together, that we're all in this thing together. And specifically in this series, what we're seeking to do is to unleash hope for the vulnerable. That, that we are for the vulnerable in the way that Jesus has been for us and the way that he has cared for us, the way that he has graced us, the way that he has, has brought his love to us, that's how we want to, to express uh, to the vulnerable in our world, that, that we want to we share his love with the most vulnerable in our parish. We want to communicate his love to the most vulnerable in our region, that we would care for the vulnerable in our country and the most vulnerable in our world. So us for them is a posture 
that says, we are with you in your struggle to survive. We are for you in your hopes for justice. We are with you in friendship, together in relationship, knowing that as we join with the vulnerable and allow ourselves to be vulnerable as well, there's a mutual transformation that happens because God's spirit is at work right there. And so that's kind of what this whole series is about. Very, very excited. What we're going to do in this series is each week we're just going to unpack one passage of Scripture that reveals God's heart on this issue. And and we're going to be challenged. We're going to allow ourselves to be challenged by the Scripture. And so this week we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 58. So if you have your Bible, open it up to Isaiah 58. We're going to unpack the first 11 verses uh, these, are, these verses are on your notes. They'll also be on the screen as well. But we just want to start by saying this. This is the business of Jesus' followers, this, this us for them. This is one of the huge reasons why the Lord established a thing called the church in the first place. And, and so we really want to be wrestle, wrestle through this idea of how do we get God's perspective when we're, we're looking at our culture, looking at the needs in, in our world, we're going to jump into Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58 is an interesting passage because it's written in the first person, the Lord is speaking. Okay, So the Lord is speaking, he's the primary voice, and who he's speaking to is the prophet Isaiah. And, and God is telling Isaiah to tell Israel something specific. Okay, so let's get into this. But God's the one who's speaking to the prophet Isaiah. He says this, shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. Okay, that's not too encouraging of a way to start Uh, This interaction between God and his people. But he's telling Isaiah, I want you to tell my people about their rebellion. I want you to tell my people that they're sinning. They're missing the mark in some of these ways. And the reason why this is interesting to me is because God is speaking to his own people. He's speaking to Israel. And the predominant posture of Israel would have been, oh, we are God's chosen people. That means God is on our side. And that really is a a dangerous kind of a conclusion to make, that God is on your side. And I know sometimes maybe we feel like that as Americans. Sometimes we feel like that because, you know, we're a part of this, this church thing or whatever, that God is on our side. And it's just really important to understand God is on his own side. What's important is that we are on his side, right? He's not on our side. We need to be on his side. So every once in a while, it's okay for us to see that God, he's calling out where we're missing the mark. He's calling out where we're living in a bit of rebellion. Remember, the Bible says that God disciplines those he counts as sons and daughters, that this is a part of his nurturing and growth plan. So, So that's how I want us to hear it. I just want to say, nobody wants a chapter to start out like this. Nobody wants God to tell us about our sins. We don't want to hear about our sins. We want to hear about somebody else's sins. Right? That's how we're wired. We want to hear about the sins of another nation or another people. Or, or you know, my, uh, give me the sins of my neighbors. Right? We want to hear the gossip. But to hear our own sins called out, this is a little hard for us. So it requires a little humility as we jump into this thing. 
the, the uh, Israelites would have had to be humble as they continued here listening to Isaiah. God says, for day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. The interesting verb here is seem. They seem eager. As if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Okay, God's saying, look, if you, if you look at them, if you, if you listen to them, you see their religious practice, they seem like they want me around. They seem like they want to be close to me. They seem like they expect me to answer all their prayers and petitions as if the only thing that I've got going on is I'm this uh, cosmic butler just listening at the door for, for the command of, of my people, you know. And, and so often that's, that's how we interact with God is we just, we just kind of address him like he's the one who will answer these prayers. So I just give him my request, give him my request, and, and then that's it. That's the sum total of a relationship. It reminds me of a story I once heard. A young boy was getting ready for bed, and as he was heading up the stairs, he called down to his family. He said, hey, I'm going up to pray now. Anybody need anything? Like he's just going to submit his order, you know, and, and that God is some kind of a celestial genie and all you got to do is rub the Bible just right and poof, what do you need? What do you need? You know, and that's how we interact with God. And God's saying, look, my people, they're, they're really religious and they're doing all this stuff. They, they seem like they want me around. They, they're asking me for all these things. But see, again, are they, is God on their side or does God want them on his side? Let's keep reading. Why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? Yet, God says, on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fasting I've chosen, only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? See, what's interesting, if you look at that and you kind of just wade through what God's saying here, he's saying he's not impressed with shows of religious fervor if they're not going to be connected to justice. He's saying, it it doesn't impress me, these outward signs of religiosity, if it's not going to be connected to my heart of compassion. See, God's really wanting something from and for his people, and it's not just these displays of religion, these displays of piety or ritual. He's saying, that's not impressive to me. In fact, if you look at the last couple of lines, it seems like God is a little bit sarcastic with his people. Say so you're just you're bowing your heads, you know, often like like a reed in the wind with your prayers, and he's saying, and and those prayers they they do about as much as wind, because that's not connecting with my heart. He keeps going. Is this, or rather, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? God says. So this is what he wants: to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free. And break every yoke. Now, most of you don't know what that verse means because you don't know what a yoke is. Uh, it's, it's an agricultural term. If you're from Duval, you know what this is. But nobody else knows uh, what a yoke is. It's, in an agrarian society, everyone would have known what a yoke is. 
because uh, a yoke would have been put around the neck of, of oxen or donkeys, beasts of burden. And the farmer would have used the yoke to harness uh, his beasts of burden. And that's how they would have plowed the fields. Uh, that's how they would collect the harvest and then carry the harvest into town. They would have used a yoke day in and day out. And what this verse has to say is, is this. A yoke is used for, um, for work, to, to make work happen. A yoke is used to control. It's how the farmer would control the animal. That, that it was a beast of burden and, and, a, and a, a part of property. And, and the farmer was the one in control, getting the, the, the produce of the work of his animals and again, there's nothing wrong with this in an agrarian society, but what the scripture says, what God is saying here, you're doing that to one another. You're putting people in yokes. You're oppressing one another in, in the way that you're interacting with those that work for you and the way that you're interacting with people that maybe aren't as, as blessed as you are. He's saying, you've got to break every yoke. Everything that's me, a means to dominate over another person, we've got to break this. He goes on, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the wanderer, the poor wanderer, with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood? And so you unpack that maybe into our culture today, to share food with the hungry. God's saying, I want to watch how you care for the homeless that are in your region, to provide for the wanderer. You know, how willing are we to care for the refugee? God wants to know. He's watching. And then the next, how willing are we to care for the needs of those on the margins? And then finally, we are to care for our extended family. Understanding our extended family includes all of humanity. So the challenge is, is, is very, it, it's specific and yet it's broad. But this is God revealing his heart to his people. And then he goes on because there's a promise here. Then, God says, your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed... Then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noon day. So when you look at that pa passage, what you see is that there are all manner of good things that God wants to pour out on his people. All manner of blessing. It's as we, we step into the fullness of life that Jesus actually is inviting us into in John 10 verse 10. We see that, that, that we're going to be participating in these things that really do connect with the heart of God. That we would break the yoke of oppression. That, that we would care for those who are in need. That, we, that we, when we see injustice, that we'd be willing to wade in and fight on behalf of justice. That's the kind of religious practice God is interested in seeing his people uh, employ. And when they employ that kind of practice, all kinds of blessing, all manner of favor is released upon God's people. Friends, this is where our faith becomes alive. This is where the journey of faith becomes so exciting and adventurous, is if we're willing to engage in this regard. You know, I was thinking, 
about what evidence is. And I was thinking how interesting it is to me that, that evidence that people use to point to and say, oh, look, look at that, there is no God, is oftentimes the same evidence that others would point to and say, no, look, God's right there. And I'll give you one example. Let's, let's just say an earthquake hits and homes are destroyed, thousands caught in a humanitarian crisis, and a lament goes out, where is God in the midst of all this suffering? And then Jesus' followers show up, and they bring care, and they bring comfort. They seek to help with shelter and stability, and then the response, oh, look, there God is right in the midst of the suffering, in the hands and feet of his followers, bringing his care and his love. And actually, Overlake, you know that this is not a hypothetical example. In a place called Iloka, Chile, there was an earthquake a couple of years ago, followed by a tsunami. And it completely destroyed and, and displaced an entire community. Overlake teams and our partners and the pastors that we have there on the ground have been investing in that community virtually every month since that disaster, and, and the town is completely rebuilt. The community is amazed at the evidence of God's grace and love. You see, for them, it's not evidence of God's absence. It's evidence of his presence right in the midst of suffering. And I want to say that difficult scenarios, hard things happen on every corner of this globe. So we don't have to look too far to find a way that we can engage, that we can help, that we can be the hands and feet of Jesus. We really don't have to look too far. But I also want to caution us that we don't have to feel that we have to fix every problem, that we have to right every wrong. I would hate to give the, the impression that we must feel overburdened and have some kind of a savior complex. Because when that happens, it often leads to burnout. It often leads to a place that's really unhealthy for followers of Jesus. So I'm not at all pitching that, that we're the ones that have to solve every issue. But there are three challenges that I want to make. And I see them specifically in this passage, and I think you do too. The first challenge I want to make is this, that we must care. That we must care. That having a compassionate heart, that caring for the needs of those around us, caring about the situations of injustice that exist, that, that caring is not an option. We've got to care. Now, if you're going to embrace an us-for-them life, it means we've got to have compassion. It's a requirement. If you're going to be sort of settled with the us-versus-them, then you probably won't care because you've got enough problems of your own. You don't care about their problems. And if it's us-versus-them and there's this antagonistic relationship, well, then you probably celebrate somebody else's problems because maybe it means that you're going to flourish while they don't, while you know, you're going to thrive while they suffer. And, and so that's an us-versus-them kind of a thing. Even if it's just us or them, you're looking at a zero-sum game, and you're thinking, no, no, it's prioritizing us over them, and so you don't care, and apathy is going to be your response. But if you're going to go after the Jesus perspective, us for them, then compassion is a requirement. Just the heart of tenderness, just God's heart that cares about people who are in suffering, people who are under oppression, people who are experiencing injustice, that, that we we got to care. And the, the best way I know how to sort of elicit that compassion is just to put yourself in someone else's shoes. 
just to pretend that that, that was a scenario that you're in, and then imagine, how would I want someone to engage with me if I were in that place? You know, Jesus is actually the one who came up with this idea. It's not copyright Mike Howerton. This is Jesus. Right? And, and he, he said this. This was his ethic that he painted. And it's been known the world round as the golden rule. Okay, so this is what Jesus says. Again, referred to as the golden rule. Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. So everything in the law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament, Jesus is trying to, trying to wrap up, sum up with this phrase, do to others whatever you would wish would be done to you. And so we foster this care. We foster this compassion. We, we seek to live with this idea that, okay, I, I do care about that scenario, because if I were in that scenario, here's how I'd like someone to care for me. And it's a challenge. By the way, if you remember reading To Kill a Mockingbird, Atticus Finch, he's the one who, who repeats this a few times. He, he says, the challenge is to walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. Just see how life is in that scenario. Then you're going to have a right heart toward them. So an interesting thing happened to me over the break. My family and I were getting packed up and ready to go on a little trip. And, and uh, of course, our plane left at like 5 a.m. the next morning. So it was 10 p.m., almost 10 p.m. when we were packing, which is how we do things in the Howerton home. And as we were packing up the stuff, we realized that one of our suitcases had a broken zipper. It was unusable. And so we're a suitcase down. And and so I get sent out to, to go to the store to buy a suitcase. And again, it's, it's right up against the, I, I know the store's closing really, really quickly. I just throw on some shoes. I'm wearing my pajama pants. It's break. I haven't shaved for a few days. I mean, I'm, I, just, I just hustle out the door, right? And I get to the store just moments before it closes. I kind of run in to, to where the suitcases are. I pick one that looks like it's in our price range. And, and I grab it, and I literally just wheel it straight up to the front. And at the counter, I, I, I wheel it up to the counter just in a place where the guy can ding it, you know, and literally the store's already announced that it's closed, so I'm like, I'm right up against it. And I get up to the counter, and the young manager behind the counter looks at me and my pajama pants, <laughs> and he lifts the suitcase on to the, t the, the counter there, and he begins to unzip every compartment. And he reaches in, he pulls out the stuffing and feels behind every compartment. And he takes his time, and it's obvious to me that he thinks I'm a shoplifter. And my first thought was, I have nothing to fear because I'm not a shoplifter. But then I thought, but I haven't gone through the suitcase. <laughs> Someone else might have jokingly put something in the suitcase or put the, and if he finds something else in the suitcase, he's already concluded I'm a shoplifter. I'll never convince him I'm not a shoplifter. And in the midst of that moment, I found myself starting to get a little heated. I started to think of all kinds of things I wanted to say to him in that moment, none of which were very nice. And I like to be nice. 
And the bottom line in this story, by the way, he found nothing, so there's no gotcha in this story. But the bottom line in this story is this. I did not like being treated like a criminal. And I don't think you like being treated like a criminal. Nobody likes being treated like a criminal. And even though I knew that I was innocent, that moment, it made me think all kind of weird things. And I started to find myself responding in sort of weird ways. And and so would anyone who's being treated like a criminal. And here's the catch, friends. I'm rarely treated like a criminal. Outside of buying suitcases, I'm never treated like a criminal. But you know, the young people in our communities are often treated like criminals. You know, people who live in certain communities are often treated like criminals. You you, you know, people of varying ethnicities are often treated like criminals. You know, the people who make under a certain amount every year often treated like criminals. You know, people who are totally displaced from their homes because of violence and are fleeing, trying to find some safe place to call a refuge, you know, they're often treated like criminals. Nobody likes to be treated like a criminal. And here's the, here's the kicker, and this is, I, you know, I just think about random things sometimes, but here's the kicker. Let's assume that that guy did find something that somebody else had put in that suitcase. So he calls the cops. The cops come, arrest me. Pastor Mike in jail is definitely a front-page story. You read about it, every single one of you. You know what you think? Doubt. Guilt. I have to come and I'd have to say, no, no, I was innocent. And even then, there's judgment. Yeah, but why were you wearing pajama pants? (laughs) If you didn't want to be considered guilty, why hadn't you shaved for a few days? Why did you look like a criminal? Hmm. And here I am trying to convince you of my innocence and that my motives were pure. And suddenly there's doubt and there's judgment. And there's condemnation. Do you see how bad it is to treat people like criminals? And the reason why I bring this up is because it's not right. And we should care that it's not right. We should care. Jesus wants us to, he wants us to have compassion. He wants us to have tenderness. He wants us to be willing to walk a mile in another person's shoes and to treat them how we want, would want to be treated if we were in that position. And you see, I, I, I just bring all this up to say this, that this year, especially in an election year, we are going to hear all sorts of scenarios pitched by all kinds of politicians on all political spectrum, and, and they're going to try to play this one side of the coin versus another. And I just want to say really, really clearly that you're free to vote however you feel led. And it's not only because you have that right as an American, but because I think it's a beautiful thing about how nuanced so many of these discussions can be. And I've strongly felt, and I say this all the time, we need committed Jesus followers of every political stripe. So I, so I am all about freedom. This is not a political moment. You are free to vote however you want to vote. But if you're a Jesus follower, you are not free not to care. That's a requirement. 
You've got to have compassion. You, you've got to work this up in your heart. And if you don't have compassion, then you've got to work on this. Because here's what the Bible says. The Bible says, whoever claims to love God and yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they've seen cannot love God whom they've not seen. And I, and I say this, and I, I want to say this really, really clearly. You might want to write this down because this will this wreck you a little bit. Is that the opposite of love is not hatred. The opposite of love is apathy. That you just don't care. That it's just not your problem. That you just can't be bothered with injustice or whatever the scenario might be. Somebody's needs just, that's not, I, I, I just don't care. That's the opposite of love. And Jesus, Jesus did not remain in that apathy. No, 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 he cared. He was moved by compassion. He came for us. And friends, that's, that's the heart that we've got to have, that heart of compassion. We must care. Second truth, the challenge I want to bring is this. We must act. We must act. And again, I just want to be really clear. We cannot do everything. No, we cannot do everything. I just want to take that burden off of us because some of you, you're prone to feel overburdened. Please don't feel overburdened. We cannot do everything, but friends, we can do something. Every one of us can do something. So the challenge is we must act. And, and I want to invite Pastor Josh up here to, to share a story and, and, and to bring a bit of a challenge, how we might act. So, Josh, come on up. Thanks, Mike. I want to share a story that will help remind us of, of the importance of, of action, why we need to act. Uh, I was in Turkey last spring with relief workers and missionaries who we partner with there. And we spent uh, uh, some time, part of our time, in a Syrian refugee camp along the southern border of Turkey and Syria. As we were distributing much-needed diapers and formula in this camp, I struck up a conversation with a Syrian Muslim man uh, who had his son with him. I wanted to share his words uh, with you. Uh, this is his story uh, that he shared with me. And, and, and he, he said to me, two years ago, I was a math teacher in my hometown in Syria. We had a home and our kids were going to school. We had a good life there. Then ISIS came in and we knew we would be tortured or killed if we stayed. So we left with many others from our town. We lost everything. One day we had a good life. The next, we had nothing. And when he shared those words, they just stuck with me. One day, we had a good life. The next, we had nothing. And we were running for our lives. We ended up here living in a tent. He, he said, uh, in the summer, it's 40 degrees Celsius. And that's uh, 104, right around 104 degrees Fahrenheit. In the winter, it's 3 degrees Celsius. It's 37 degrees Fahrenheit. We've been here two years now, living in a tent. And we have no hope. We don't want this war. We want to live in peace. The, the world is full of vulnerable people. There are, there are over 4.5 million Syrian refugees, and they are just one of the many vulnerable people groups in our world right now. If you've been around uh, Overlake for a while, you, you've heard us talk about street kids in Kenya and trafficking victims in, in Thailand because as a church, we're directly involved with those groups. But the list also goes on from there. And, and these vulnerable people aren't just uh, overseas. They're right here in our own community. Foster kids and, and single moms and, and homeless families. You may not know this, but there are now over 10,000 homeless people in King County. 
over a thousand of those uh, men, women, and children are living in their cars. Uh, and, and only a couple churches and organizations in all of King County are providing safe parking uh, uh, places where they can park overnight safely. And, and so, a, so a group of volunteers and a couple of staff uh, here at Overlake, we decided um, we've, got, we've got parking space here. We've got a parking lot, and, and maybe we should offer some, some space here. And so, so each night now in our back parking lot, there are about 15 unhoused men, women, and children that are sleeping in, in, in vehicles just right here. Um, so if, if we open our eyes, if we open our hearts, and if we take the time, we're going to see needs everywhere. And as we see them, we, we need to act. That's the challenge that Pastor Mike is bringing through this series. All of us who claim to be following Jesus, we have to be asking ourselves regularly, which vulnerable person am I caring for? Who is the vulnerable person that I'm developing relationship with? And not just because they need us, but because we need them too. See, we understand the gospel um, when we see it through the eyes of the vulnerable. When we understand that our own vulnerability and brokenness, uh, when we understand those things, we, 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 that, that, and that's, that's the connection. And, and, and that happens most often when we're in relationship with a vulnerable person. <clears throat> so throughout this series, we'll be sharing more about the specific vulnerable populations that we're focused on as a church. And, and we'll have info on the handout and at tables in the hallway in the weeks ahead. But in the meantime, today, this week, I want to challenge you to keep your eyes open. Look for the needs. Let God's spirit help you see your own vulnerability and your own brokenness. And then to see the vulnerable people in need around you. All right, Pastor Mike. So, so Josh is bringing a challenge to keep our eyes open. And I want to take it just one step further. I actually, I, I, want, to, I, I want to give us an assignment this week. Okay, so here's, here's the assignment. If you'll receive this, this is the challenge. Each of you, I want you to think about somebody that you already know, somebody who's already in your life, the circle that you live in, the, the, the area that you drive through, just sort of your world right now. I want you to think of someone or, or let God bring someone to mind who's a bit vulnerable right now, somebody who is in a little bit of a need. Somebody who you know that they might be hurting right now because of an illness. They might be suffering right now because of an employment. I want you to invite the Lord to bring somebody to mind, to, to, to let you see their face right now and, and to see them in the eyes. This could be someone, you know, we talk about the vulnerable, but specifically when you're in transition, you're vulnerable. So maybe you think about somebody who's just gone through a move. Or maybe they've just experienced a death in the family. Somebody's gone through a divorce. Single parents. Right? The children of single parents. Whoever it is that God's bringing to mind right now, the, the challenge is this. That in this next week that you would act with compassion toward them. That you would reach out, that you would somehow make connection with them. That you would extend the care of Jesus to them in some way. Could be through some words, it could be through a card, could be through a small gift, some gesture of help and assistance, but whatever it is that you would reach out and you would care for someone in your world who's vulnerable. We want to unleash, we want to unleash compassion, acts of compassion for the vulnerable in our world.
And if you would do that, what we really ask is, is that you would not only do that, but then that you would share that story. When I want to gather a bunch of these stories, you can email them to, to this address. It's, it's uh, I don't have it, it's on the screen, mystory@occ.org. And we would love to capture those. We'd love to share those just as a way of encouraging us to keep being on this journey of having the heart that God wants us to have. We don't want to do any religious practice that doesn't connect with the heart of God. And this is God's heart. So we must care, right? Compassion is a requirement. We must act. These acts of compassionate uh, for the vulnerable. Th this is what God's calling us to. And the third challenge here is that we must not fear. We must not be afraid. We can't allow ourselves to be paralyzed by fear. And, and truthfully, as you think about reasons to not care... As you think about reasons to not act, fear is almost always at the heart. Almost always, fear is the reason that, that prevents us from caring about a need. Fear is the reason that prevents us from, from reaching out and, and, and connecting with, with the person in need. And, and we're afraid of a couple things. We're afraid of messing it up, that, that we might say the wrong thing, that we might do the wrong thing. And so we kind of kind of get over ourselves and be like, oh, yeah, I might mess this up, but I'm, you know, I'm... Or we're afraid of getting messy. We don't want our lives to be messy. We don't add a little messiness to our lives. And, and when you think about that, I, I just want you to remember, aren't you glad that Jesus didn't let fear paralyze him? Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't remain distant in fear, but he actually stepped through fear and he came and he lived with us and he gave his life for us and he lavished love on us and grace on us, forgiveness, right? Strength for today and a home for eternity, all of this because Jesus didn't remain paralyzed in fear. And so we, we can't remain paralyzed in fear. In fact, I, I, I hate to say this, but I just, I, I want to just be clear. I want to be I want to speak just as a presenter of what the scriptures say. Do you know you are commanded not to be afraid? God commands us. You might think that I'm suggesting not to be afraid, but God commands us not to be afraid. And most scholars agree upon the number of times that God commands us not to be afraid in scripture. 365 times does God command us not to be afraid. That's one for every day. You know why? It's because we're afraid every day. And so God commands us every day, day in and day out, don't be afraid. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. I care for you. Don't be afraid. You cannot mess this up. It's already messed up. Don't be afraid. Right? Don't be afraid. I'm going to carry you in this life. I'm going to carry you into the next life. Don't be afraid. See, Scripture says this. It says, love drives out fear. Right? This is 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And so we want to let his love drive out our fear. We want to let his love not only fill us so that there's no fear, but flow through us so that we're communicating his love in our world. Colossians 3.14 says, Above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so it's not just the fear of danger. Sometimes we're afraid of the unknown. Sometimes we're afraid of the uncomfortable. Sometimes we're afraid of being vulnerable ourselves. Josh mentioned that. 
And you know, the, the truth is we're all a bit vulnerable. We're all broken somewhere. All of us are in need of the love of Jesus. Every single one of us hurts somewhere. And this is why it's so important for us to take a passage like Isaiah 58 to heart, that we would try to care, that we would seek to act, that we would step through our fear, that, that, that our religious connection with God, our, our, the way in which we process our faith, that it would be connected with acts of compassion and justice. And then there's this incredible promise on the other side, right? This is what the heart of God says, and I'm going to read it in the message paraphrase. Again, this is Isaiah 58 from the message. This is the kind of fast I'm after, God says, to break the chains of injustice, get rid of exploitation in the workplace, free the oppressed, cancel debts. What I'm interested in seeing you do is sharing your food with the hungry, inviting the homeless poor into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering ill-clad, being available to your own families. Do this and the lights will turn on. I love this. Your lives will turn around at once. Your righteousness will pave your way. The God of glory will secure your passage. You see, that's where this whole thing wraps up. The heart of God in all this, he's saying, look, there's so much promise available for you. There's so much blessing. There's so much good I want to fill your life with. And as you step into this, as you you engage with compassion, as you act, as you step through your fear, you're going to be living the fullness of life. And the whole thing ends with this promise. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs. Can you circle that? He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. You see, that's the promise of the the Lord's presence. That's the promise of the Lord's blessings. That's how we flourish. It's how we step into God's favor as we pursue the sort of spiritual practice that God's interested in. The kind of religious expression that marries fervor, passionate spiritual fervor, with justice and compassion. And I want to say this really clearly. You're not acting, you're not caring, you're not stepping through your fear so that you will earn God's love. He already loves you. God loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for you. His love is secure. His love is proven. His love is poured out already. His grace, all kinds of of just absolute blessing. God's already poured it out over us. No, no, we don't do these things so that we can earn God's love. We, We do these things in recognition that God loves us, but not only us. No, no, his love is poured out for us and them. And the clearest expression of this is when we live us for them. So why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes and let's receive these challenges. Jesus, we really do recognize that you are the one who has pursued us in love. You're the one who stepped through any fear you had. You're the one who came to live with us. You chose to live humbly. You chose to live in poverty. You chose to live in, in this incredible righteousness and, and you taught us how to live. You modeled it and you, and you told us how to live. 
And then you died on the cross for us. You, you purchased grace for us. We have forgiveness. And then you invite us into the fullness of life. And, and, and this is it, that, that we would not only receive your love, but that we would share your love. And so, Jesus, we just confess right now, we need your help. Show us the faces of the people that you want us to connect with this week. Show us the words that we might say so that we could communicate comfort and care. Show us the acts that we might embrace so that we could, we could tangibly express your goodness this week. We love you, Lord, and we receive all of your good things that you have for us. But we ask that we don't just receive them for ourselves or our family. We just receive them as conduits. Lord, we want to receive your goodness and then offer that. We want to live in us for them life. Thank you for showing us how, Lord Jesus. We pray all this in your name. Amen.